Brought to you by Business Fights Poverty. Hello and welcome to Business Fights Poverty's Social Impact Pioneers podcast series. I am Katie Heisen, Director of Thought Leadership. These interviews with social impact pioneers provide you with insights, different perspectives, advice and maybe a little inspiration, giving you first-hand understanding of how businesses and others are tackling some of the world's biggest social challenges so that you can learn from those who have been there before, helping you in your decision-making and action-taking. What do you really understand about poverty? Meet Eric Mead, the social impact pioneer, futurist, leadership coach, and seriously deep thinker about poverty. Buckle up for this podcast conversation as Eric comes with a reputation As one reviewer of his new book puts it, Eric avoids simple answers in favour of real insights into the roots of poverty. So get ready to explore questions such as why are people poor and what should be done about it? Eric's latest work, which looks at reframing poverty, is award-winning and critically acclaimed, with perhaps my favourite quote coming from Eric Nee, editor-in-chief of Stanford Social Innovation Review, who warns us that this is a provocative book that upends conventional thinking and forces the reader to think deeply about what poverty is. So Eric, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. And Eric, I wanted to start our conversation. Really, you've you've recently authored Reframing Poverty, um, New Thinking and Feeling About Humanity's Greatest Challenge. And in it, you look at the different ways we see poverty arguing that the differences are potentially holding us back from tackling it. Can I begin by asking you, actually, what does poverty really mean? Like, what does it mean to you? And how did you reach this conclusion? Yeah, thanks, Katie. I like that you asked, what does poverty mean to me? Not just how do I define it? Um, I think there are a lot of different definitions of poverty that are out there. and, And it was in reviewing those different definitions and different approaches of poverty that I came to write this book. And where I start even in the book is more on the question of what, is it, what does it mean? Because I think it means something different to each of us based on our own experiences. So one of the things I do when I, when I do a workshop on the book, I start people in a small, uh, a quick small group exercise. And I have them discuss amongst themselves the question, who was the first person in your family line to escape poverty and how? How did they do it? And so there will be some people in the room that, you know, they are the first person in their family to escape poverty. And they'll talk about how they did that. It was some, you know, maybe some opportunity that came their way or just their hard work or, you know, a mentor that came along and and told them, you know, opened up a different path for them. And then right across from that person at the table, you'll have somebody, you know, well-dressed, later career, maybe, maybe a, a, a white man in his 60s or 70s, and, and he'll, no one would think that he'd have any personal experience of poverty. And then he'll mention his grandparents in the Dust Bowl, you know, in the 1930s, where the big dust storms that swept across the, the southern plains in the U.S., and He'll talk about the struggles that they had just to to survive and and make something of themselves after that. So poverty 
is, I think is something that we all share. There aren't a, a lot of people who couldn't find ancestors within a couple generations back who generally struggled to survive. So I think all of those experiences that we have with poverty through, through our own lives, even just what we experience around us in society, in our personal experience, if we have experienced poverty at different parts in our, of our lives, and then even the ancestral stories that get passed on to us and, and how did our ancestors uh, get to a better life if they were able to do that. I think all of that shapes what poverty means to each of us. And by extension, it shapes how we respond to poverty. So what are the actions uh, we're going to take? And then what are the, the ways we're thinking conceptually about poverty that, that guide uh, or inform those efforts? Now, on a related note, if you asked me how to define poverty, I, I think the book offers a startlingly different definition. And it's because poverty is inherently relative. Obviously, what counts as poverty in the U.S., is different from what would count as poverty in, in many other countries in the world. And, and so I think we've always struggled to come up with, well, what exactly is it that we're, we're trying to uh, go after or reduce in the world? And you know that's even before the past couple of decades where we've added things like access to sanitation and, and healthcare, education, social inclusion, all these other things that people have added that are not strictly economic measures. So with all these different definitions, I was thinking, okay, what is it that unites all these things? And so I defined poverty in the book in a, in a different way, which is really about those emotional, emotional responses that we have that come from our own experiences that, that I just mentioned. And so the way I define poverty in the book is that it, it is a, a sustained level of deprivation on the part of a human or a group of humans that uh, prompts a significant emotional reaction in an observer, which is sounds totally bizarre, but I think that's what really cuts to what makes us say that a certain situation is poverty and another one isn't. It's that we're emotionally drawn to it. Either we're emotionally drawn to do something about it because we we find it, uh, we're angry, we're we're frustrated with it. We we just don't want it. We're, we feel empathy, compassion. Maybe we want to do something about it because we feel disgusted or, or fearful, but that's really the, where the book turns is on how do we engage with poverty, the new thinking and the new feeling uh, in ways that help us understand why we're doing the things we're doing, how we could do them better, how other people are conceptualizing poverty because of their own experiences, and then how we can, how we can work together in new ways to, to collaborate and find better solutions. It's interesting. I come from a really sort of scientific background and out of business. And so <laughs> when you're sort of talking feeling, there's part of me that instantly goes, oh, is that right? And that, but at the same time, I'm, I'm nodding along. So it's, I'm in a kind right, of- Don't really, hang up. Don't yeah, hang up. Yeah, total juxtaposition here, which Eric <laughs> leads me to my next kind of question. So what motivated you to get on this train? Like where, where's, where's the motivation come from you to write the book, to devote so much time to this? So I, I think it's really the experience of, of doing research on, on the topic and finding so many disparate points of view that are argued very convincingly. And there's so many reports that come out where the, the title could really be, poverty is caused by this thing and it's not caused by that other thing. So you know one day you'll have a report come out from one think tank or NGO or somebody, and it's all about how 
you know, here's the evidence that poverty is not caused by individual bad behaviors. It's a s- systemic failure. You know, there are no jobs. There's no, when there is a job, there's no uh, transportation to the job or something like that. And then the very next day, somebody will come out from a, a different perspective, laying out a very clear argument that there are just a couple of things that people experiencing poverty could do differently in their lives, like finish high school. You know, this is, it comes from a report from the Brookings Institution in the US where they argued if you stay in school till graduation, you get a, a job as soon as you're you know, able to work. And if you don't have kids outside of a committed long term relationship, you have a very, very high chance of escaping poverty and, and staying out of poverty for your whole life. So you have these two different reports, maybe re- released in the same week, that are arguing very different things. And I said, well, these are, when, as I look back through the literature, you know, hundreds of years, these different views have always been there. And if people, if well-meaning, sincere, intelligent people are, have been articulating these different views for hundreds of years, then my assumption would be that there's some truth in each one. And how can we break through this argument between them or among them? I actually have four in the book that are I orient on a on a two by two matrix because I was told if you write a book, you have to have a two by two matrix. So I have one. So these there are these four views that have been fighting each other, blocking, you know, positive uh, progress in some a lot of the time. And if there's a little bit of truth in each one, then how do we pull out that truth and and combine it and reframe it? In a way that helps people see the other perspectives, improve the work they're doing because they're incorporating the insights from the other points of view, and then also collaborating, you know, nonprofits with business, with government, with people who have these different perspectives, and doing better work together. Oh, I love a four by four matrix. There's nothing like. I'm it. telling you, <laughs> Mackenzie, you've got a lot to answer for. Um, but I want to, yeah, delve into that. You know, different perspectives different well, me, opinions like what does that what how do we come together then how do we how do we move beyond this how how can we go to the point where we're like okay we genuinely are at the same starting point now we can move forward or or do you just argue that that's not necessary I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts well let me quickly tell you what the four views are there's there's a view i call structural which is what i said it's you know first it's lack of jobs lack of resources Lack of access. That's I also put institutional racism and gender discrimination, things like that, where it's things are available to some groups but not others. So that I put in this this structural the structural view bucket that includes all those macro level things. The other one I mentioned is what I call the behavioral, which is it's about individuals and they are making bad decisions and they're either getting into poverty or, or getting stuck there. Then the third view is in no particular order is what I call the cultural view. And that's where many of those same behaviors or attitudes that are in the behavioral view actually get transmitted from generation to generation in, in, in poor communities. And then the last one is what I call the contextual view, which draws a lot on recent brain science. And this is the view that says, if either one of us or anyone else got airdropped into poverty, the stresses of that situation would you know, reduce our cognitive abilities. You know, there's research saying you lose up to like 13 or 14 IQ points on an IQ test just because of the scarcity that you're experiencing. So any of us would make similarly bad decisions, the same ones that the behavioral view people are talking about 
if we were um, suddenly found in, in, that, in the condition of poverty. So those are the four views. Now, I will share the axes of the two by two. It's not hugely scientific and it kind of deals with feelings. I don't know how, how you'll like that. But the one of the axes is, do I, as that observer, do I consider people who are experiencing poverty as generally speaking like me or generally speaking unlike me? So are they more like a self or are they more like an other? And then the other dimension is, do I think that poverty is an individual circumstance or is it bigger than the individual? Is it something at the systemic or environmental level? And then if you just map those, those four views, you have the behavioral, which is individual about an other. The cultural view is macro level environmental about an other. So it's a group I'm not a part of. And then the systemic or the structural is all those uh, systemic things that are about people like who are kind of like me, and they're just in this system that doesn't work. And then the contextual is the one that is, they're like me, but it's an individual level. They're in this, in this set of circumstances that make it very difficult for them to function effectively uh, in the economy. So the basis of the two by two is, is really that feeling. So it's not so much that we all need to agree on one. And I think a lot of the effort thus far has been people with the structural view convincing everyone else that they're right and, and the same for the other three views. I think the point is to come to a, a higher level of understanding about what is my experience of poverty through my family, through you know my, my wife grew up in China in a very small village, didn't know she was poor, but by any objective measure, she was as, as a young child. Uh, my dad grew up poor in rural Western New York state. He knew he was poor. Um, and of course, the standards of that will vary by country and, and community. Um, so these are some of the experiences I have and, and any stories from my other you know, just family background. So how are they shaping my emotional response to the issue? And then what is the view in that two-by-two two matrix? What's the view that best supports or makes me feel okay about that emotional reaction that I have? So if I'm really angry about poverty, when I when I experience it in the world of just walking down the street and I, I see, you know, people really struggling around me, if my response is anger of, you know, how does society allow this condition to exist, then that's going to be wrapped up. It, that may speak to my own experiences from my own background or my family's background, and then that's going to create this attachment to the view that hey, it's it's structural, it's systemic, and we need massive you know, societal upheaval to, to figure this thing out. If I come from a family background where people struggled hard and others that they knew didn't, and they made it, then I'm going to have this view that, you know, my family did it. Why can't other families? And if I see that same situation in the street, I'm going to feel maybe disgust or, or a different kind of anger. And that's going to be wrapped up with this view that, you know, these people aren't taking personal responsibility. They should go get jobs. They should you know, stop doing all these uh, counterproductive behaviors. So the first step isn't to get to a shared view and we all say, okay, this is what it is. And, and we move forward together. The first view is to understand why am, I, why am I preferring one view over all these others? And if I were to release that a little bit and recognize there are other views and there are other reasons, perfectly good reasons why people might have those views, how can I draw those insights plug them into what I'm doing? And then also, how can I collaborate more effectively with the people who 
because of their other experiences, they have gravitated toward the views that I would otherwise ignore or reject. Okay. Wow. Okay. <laughs> my, brain, <laughs> my brain is now like doing double time. So if we're rejecting the idea that you have to have, we have to have a shared, like there is one view, it's about understanding why you Um, why you see this view, why you have this response to it. Is there a way that we can jointly move forward? Like actually, how do we take a step forward to try and address the varying dimensions of poverty? Or is that now a moot point because everybody experiences it in a different way? Well, there's a, there's a great quote from F. Scott Fitzgerald, the, the American Uh, novelist, where he says that the, I should remember it now, Uh, basically that I use it in the book, but the, um, the, the mark of true intelligence is the ability to hold multiple perspectives at the same time and, and maintain the ability to function. I'm paraphrasing there, but that's essentially what it is. And, and we're moving from an era when we can think about these things dichotomously and say, it's this, it's not that. You know, I have a friend who whose daughter says if she's in a conversation about about poverty and somebody says the word agency or says the word uh, personal responsibility, conversation's over. She doesn't want to talk about it. She wants to talk about the broad systemic failures that are that are keeping people in difficult situations. So there is this this default dichotomous view that it's this, not that. I think to work more effectively with an issue as complex as poverty, we need to be able to work those polarity or those tensions between multiple points of view that all have some validity. So it's not so much that there's just one view, macro view we're we're going to come to, although later in the book, I think there are some intimations of that. But it's really how do we put on these different views to look at the same situation and generate even more insights? So I created this this structure the you know the 2 by 2 and started working with it over a few years when i was teaching a class at a university in the us and what i did in that class is i had people uh, it was a social entrepreneurship class so i had the students choose some issue that they wanted to work on could be anything i had people working on you know helping community college students in the us you know, graduate in higher numbers. I had people working on, you know, youth unemployment in Nigeria. I had people working on all kinds of different issues. So the first thing is just choose a topic. And then what we did is we went through each one of these four views and I made them write an essay explaining their challenge that they had chosen from each of those perspectives. And it had to be just exclusively that perspective, just like those white papers from different think tanks that I mentioned earlier. So they had even as painful as it was for them, they had to look at, you know, let's say community college students that don't graduate in as high numbers as they should. So take that issue and analyze it from the perspective of, you know, what are these people doing wrong? That's a behavioral view. What are the what are the bad behaviors that are creating that issue for them? And having being forced, even if that's not your preference, which it wasn't for any of the students, being forced to go through that discipline. And then contextually, what are the stresses just of being in that situation that lead people to do some of those, those negative behaviors or, or have difficulty coping with the stress? And then structural, most people felt more comfortable 
there, but what are the you know what are the systemic factors that are driving this? And even culturally, what are the cross generational factors? You know, how might you improve your solution to the challenge by reaching across generations, including multiple generations in in your work? And most of the students, as they went through that, they generated new insights, even if they held their nose the whole time they were writing these other essays because they they thought it it just stunk. They would get to the end and they would change their solution to the challenge because of these other insights they generated by by looking at it from from other perspectives. So it's not so much it's not that we're going to come to one view. It's more that we have this agility to look at things in a different way and to release some of the emotional commitment we have to the view that they we've chosen and it has to be this way. Like my friend's daughter who refuses to even have a conversation about personal responsibility. So it's it's how do we we wear those different hats, put on the different lenses and generate new insight that drives better action. A great set of questions. And I was just thinking, again, I guess putting myself back in my shoes when I was sat in a business trying to make decisions and just to have that set of questions in front of me. I was wondering, it's a bit cheeky, but can I ask you to share with them with me afterwards and I'll put them in the words that sit alongside the podcast because I just think to share those with others might just, yeah, certainly it would help me anyway in my, my work and decision-making. Well, I'll tell you what we can do is just, there's a graphic from the book that we can just make available that has, you know, it has the, this illustrious two by two matrix, but is populated with the questions. It's like eight or 10 questions in each one that you can walk through. And I actually took that from the exercise I did with the students. So you can walk through and, and say, look, if I were looking at my challenge from a behavioral perspective, what are the questions I'd ask myself? And it walks you through and the same for the other three quadrants. There you go, guys. For everybody listening, that is the reason why there is a <laughs> diagram and PDF. words that sit alongside it. Uh, because I've asked, you don't get it unless you ask. Eric, that's really kind. And I have to say, I, I wish I was in your class, but equally, I think my brain would have had to work quite hard, I suspect. <laughs> it's not there is a lot of pain. Cough There's out class. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I just wanted, I mean, given your deep thinking into this topic, but also your perspective in looking at different ways the world is perceiving and understanding not just the world the people um perceiving poverty what do you see as the kind of trends the emerging trends around poverty i mean perhaps others aren't aware of at the moment and and should be well i don't think there's a trend i could pull out that you wouldn't know about and um you know one of my titles one of my professional titles is is futurist and a lot of times people want to know you know, what's the next big thing? And what they actually need is some help dealing with the things they already know about. So I'll offer, you know, the book is Reframing Poverty. Reframing is a lot of what I, what I do. So let me make a quick stab at reframing just this tsunami that, that you've mentioned in your work and all just all the really difficult things we're facing right now. And it comes from just a broad look at the entire history and future of our species. Because if you, if you look at the, the trajectory we're on, and if you look at, say, the, just the graph of human population going back to the beginning and going out into the future, you will see that it's, a, it's an S-curve. You know, for, a number, for a couple hundred years, people started freaking out that we were just going to, it was going to, it was going to be infinite, the population and, and it was going to end horribly. And it, it might still, 
but we now know that it's it's an S curve that increased very very slowly for thousands of years in the around the year 1800 let's say it hit a tipping point accelerated a lot and if you look at the UN population projections it is expected to stabilize somewhere between 11 and 12 billion maybe 150 or 200 years from now so Jonas Salk who's the the guy who came up with the polio vaccine about 100 years ago he looked at this in the 1970s from a biologist perspective and said, if I'm looking at a species that's undergoing this kind of change and moving from this rapidly accelerating population to the stabilizing population, the species is doing something different. And he said that we're moving in that shift, humans will move from phase A to phase B of human evolution. And each of those phases has its own prevailing value set. And he said the values of phase A were things like survival and growth. That makes sense. You know, we started out as roving bands. We made some city states, ended up, you know, some empires and multinational corporations. That's been that's been the process alongside our growth in numbers. And it was too early for him in the 1970s to say what the values of phase B would be. But I think it's safe to say if we're leveling off, sustainability must be there. Sustainability is what allows us to live indefinitely in our with our within our natural constraints. And then I would add equity, which loosely speaking is kind of the value that allows us to live indefinitely with one another. So I mention all this because if you look at that graph, those UN population projections, you're going to see that the shift from phase A to phase B of human evolution is somewhere perceptibly somewhere between the year 2020 and the year 2025. So we're we're recording this and the middle of 2022, it's it's kind of relevant. So all the stuff that's happening happening with us as a species, I think it makes sense that we're going through this turbulent time. It is really challenging, and we might not make it through. You know, some species don't. Salk, and when he discusses this, it's a book called "The Survival of the Wisest." I think you, I don't think you would find a new copy of that, but there there are older copies floating around. But he, he points out that not every species makes it through. So fruit flies do. They increase in population every generation until in a confined space, until the, the space is fill, filled, and then they don't increase anymore. So if we do that, then that's great. Uh, lemurs, on the other hand, uh, they go through this cycle of, of growth and collapse and growth and collapse and, because they, they just never figured out. So the all the challenges we're facing right now are, are, are huge and significant, and they're even significant in the entire trajectory of our special evolution. So I think it makes sense that it's so hard, and it's whether or not we make it is really going to come down to our ability to maybe let go of some values or at least allow new values to come in and then start to revise our, our society and, and the way we do things based on this expanded phase B value set. So it's not a trend, but hopefully uh, it helps listeners reframe some of the stresses that that the whole world is really shuddering with right now. That's fascinating. This is a very interesting conversation, (laughs) Eric. Um, Eric, I wanted to go back to the point I made earlier around the decision-making questions. And I just wanted to sort of deep dive a moment into that a little bit more. So if you are a practitioner listening to this 
podcast who was sat in within an organization, whether a private business organization or, or other, how would you be perhaps lobbying for your organization to take more action on poverty? Indeed, if they are at all. And how might you go about that? Like if you were if you were a practitioner within an organization, what would you be saying or doing? So I'm tempted to offer, you know, offer another reframing. <laughs> I don't know if you'll, you'll allow it. Do it, um, do it, go on. <laughs> so going back to the emotional basis of how we think about poverty and then the fact that we have trouble letting go of one of these views and incorporating other views. Part of that, I think, is driven by the way that we are taught to think. And it all goes by, back to a lesser known English gentleman, maybe a neighbor of yours named Isaac Newton. And what he told us was he gave these, these three laws of motion, you know, an object at rest tends to stay at rest and, and the rest of it. And it, it created this kind of reductionist, deterministic view that like if you're concerned about poverty, the first thing you should do is find out what causes poverty. And because people are doing that in a different, in different emotional contexts, of course, they come up with different answers. And the need to have only one answer makes them fight about it for 500 years or more. So one of the things I do, I try to do in my work and, and that is covered in the book is to move out of that Newtonian deterministic way of thinking to something that's rooted more in complexity science and chaos theory and that type of thing. And one of the things we find there is that the initial conditions of any, of any experiment or any, any situation are, are hugely significant in shaping the final outcome. So if, you're, if you define poverty as a life outcome that can be experienced by a human being, then my suggestion would be to see what you can control in that. And one of the easiest things, easy is probably overstating the point, but one of the most obvious things where you have some leverage is with the initial conditions. And I, I speak about this, even the recommendations a bit in the book, but I would really push for those things that we can do to change, to improve the initial conditions into which people are born. And that could be things, I mean, it's, it's clean water, it's in some places it could be affordable childcare. In other places, it's going to be better newborn baby healthcare. So it, it could be any number of things, but it's really leveraging the complexity of poverty to do what you can by shaping those initial conditions. I'll share that the first thing I ever published about poverty was this was an article called What If We Loved the Poor? And it was kind of in early, early development, maybe of some of the ideas that ended up in the book, but I was a young parent. And so, you know, loving my kids was very important to me. And I said, you know, what if we loved all human beings the way we loved our, we love our own kids? So I looked at the situation of being a parent to my kids and I said, what do I want for these kids? And what would I want for all humans everywhere? And in both cases, it's a situation where you want the best for somebody you have limited control over both the choices they make and the challenges they face in their environment, at least you know, once they're over two or one and a half or something and can walk and crawl and get into trouble. So how would you do that? And so 
that's that's my point of reference then for how do, how would I leverage the initial conditions to improve people's lives? It's what things would I want for my own kids? And then how can I move every newborn human in the world toward that sort of a, a situation where they're they're more comfortable and, and have more opportunities ahead of them? Thank you, Eric, so much for sharing that uh, with us. But um, apologies to all practitioners who are out there listening. <laughs> now, like, okay, Just tell right. me what to do. <laughs> Where do I start? Oh, my goodness. Now we need to wrap up our conversation. I feel like we could continue this uh, for yeah. many, many uh, hours. But uh, Eric, I wanted to conclude our conversation to find out what you're up to next, because, you know, you've just got your book out and I don't feel as though you're finished. So what next, Eric? Well, I, I think it's, I mean, my life as, as I've done some things and been successful and done other things and not been successful, I think I've just discovered that my role in whatever I'm touching is to help people reframe things, take a take a step back, generate new insights. Uh, so that's, I I do a lot of consulting work with with organizations in all all sectors. I, you know, sometimes that's facilitation, strategic planning, organization development, futurist work like scenario planning. So all that stuff is ongoing. And then in this conversation specifically about poverty, it is it's really helping people, uh, you know, prompting the conversations and prompting the self-reflection that will help people deepen and kind of figure out their relationship to the issue so that they can collaborate more effectively with others they can uh, improve the, the the work that they're doing so i'm i'm i was not born to be on the ground of this issue and and doing one specific thing but if i can uh, support the overall effort by by prompting new conversations and generating generating insight uh, to improve the outcomes i think that's that's the role i should be playing oh eric keep going thank you so much and thank you for joining us today and sharing so generously with us. Um, Eric Mead, thank you very much. Thanks, Katie. And if you like what you've heard today, please do rate and subscribe to us. I would also love to hear your feedback. So please do drop me a line at any time. I'm Katie at businessfightspoverty.org. Many thanks. Brought to you by Business Fights Poverty.